welcome to Growing E-Commerce. I'm your host, Mike Ryan of Smarter E-Commerce. Today I'm going to share with you one of my world-famous monologues. <laughs> In a nutshell, advertising is changing and there's a huge ongoing need for modernization. I share a few of my thoughts on this, including testing and learning, account structure, expressing and optimizing toward value in Google Ads, and why the Google Merchant Center is increasing in significance. All right, let's get into it. So today I wanna to talk about um, kind of one big theme and, and sort of about three sub themes inside of there. And I've got, I've got some notes in front of me. Um, so time will tell, let's find out. But this big theme that I wanna get into here is like, I would call it the modern marketer. What does it mean today to be marketing? And for more context there, because that's huge, talking primarily about Google ads and talking primarily about e-commerce. So the sub themes then that I wanna get into are what I'm calling the hideous strength of incrementality. I'll explain why, why I call it that. And then there's this idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In this case, beauty is in the eye of the stakeholder. And then you know about, you know, center of gravity. Um, and we're gonna talk about how in Google, that's increasingly becoming the merchant center of gravity. So there are my awful puns that you're going to have to deal with. Let's just get in front of it now. Um, you know, I love to write these really long articles every once in a while that are pretty detailed. And it's so hard to write an article like that because you have to think really big at the start. And then you have to spend all this time structuring down and bringing detail to life. And uh, I'm not really ready for that for that level of structure and detail. Um, so maybe there's gonna be an article here one day and you get to hear me thinking through some of this stuff now. Um, and thanks for indulging me on that. I hope you'll find it valuable. So without spending any more time on introductions here, let's talk about this idea of the modern marketer or why I think that's relevant, what, what I mean by that. And I was just talking about structured thinking and structuring down into things and that's actually at the heart of what I mean here too, because I guess we're just at a point when we're talking about Google ads, I know there are huge changes in Facebook as well. When we think about the, the attribution challenges that are faced by meta advertisers, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. Um, and also new campaign types coming out there, like um, what is it called again? Uh, Advantage Plus or something like that. Oh man, I'm blanking on it right now. Sorry about that. But uh, you see right there, I'm not I'm not a huge Facebook expert. So I, I would love to have someone on a show one time talk about Facebook. But in Google, things are no less dynamic, no less changing. And the big changes, you know them. In, in recent time, there's been the Performance Max campaign type that's rolled out. There have been massive changes to how search functions so we're talking about changes to match types, talking about um, ETAs, extended text ads being replaced with RSAs, responsive search ads, and all these changes that are occurring in Google Ads right now. And you see that these themes are 
causing a lot of reevaluation and reconsidering. Um, at HeroConf in London in last July, I I had the pleasure of attending that and speaking there. And one of the most popular talks, from what I could tell, came from Sam Tomlinson, really bright guy. And uh, boy, what was the exact name of his session? I think it was called The Art and Science of a Modern Google Ad Structure, something like this. And more recently at SMX Advanced in Europe, um, Martin Rueckeding, who's the grandfather of the, the query sculpting approach back then, one of the great hackers in the space, um, a really logical thinker, and we'll talk about the importance of that later. He had um, a session that was called like account structure in the age of automation. And so you see these people who are really at the front of the market and and they're taking on this theme as well. And I think it's because generally the question has become, how do all these things fit together? I mean, you can, and it's not it's not just the introduction of Performance Max, because even if you don't have that campaign type active, as mentioned, these other kinds of changes that are going on, there's just a lot happening. Things that we got used to working with in the past, like search term reports and so on, and um, changing. And uh, you can view a whole table of, here's a Performance Max campaign in your account. And here is the interaction with every other campaign type in the account. So that's this very functional overview. Um, which campaign takes priority under which circumstances? And it usually has to do with ad rank. This is, of course, different in the case of shopping, where Pmax just dominates shopping. Um, and it's a very controversial one, how Pmax interacts with search campaigns, particularly on this brand search topic, um, where people feel that Google has made a statement about how that works, <clears throat> and maybe the reality on the ground is a bit more complicated than that. But to bring it around to the point, I mean, the question here is, which campaigns should I use and why? It's about recognizing kind of the, there's this feasibility space inside of Google Ads account. What, it, what can you do in a Google Ads account? <clears throat> what things are possible? And some things that we used to be able to do are we're not able to do. Some things that we used to be able to do just don't make sense anymore in a new context. Let's talk about SCAGs, for example, single keyword ad groups falling out of favor because with match types behaving, um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. <clears throat> it wouldn't work the way that it used to work. Uh, other popular campaign structuring or account structuring things like having a query funneling approach. Um, it's still possible in a standard shopping campaign, but it's fallen a bit out of favor considering the new environment that we're in. So considering these new constraints and the things that are no longer feasible or the feeling that the area of activity has gotten more narrow, you could use different roles for this. Like, how can I choreograph my campaigns or how can I orchestrate my campaigns or so on? But in a nutshell, if we look at whether it's choreography for dance or orchestration for music in a symphony. That comes down to what are the instruments that you have or what are the dancers that you have and what is the role of each of those people? What is the role that they are playing? And this is the this is a question that we have to answer now. What What is the role of each campaign and each campaign type inside of a Google Ads account? Um, and now what it's really going to come down to Came back to what I said earlier about, about Martin 
is the largely the quality of logic that we can bring to bear here. Um, you almost need like kind of a systems thinking here to think these are the tools in my toolbox and how can I really blend these things in the right way. Um, and there's also a creativity is a huge important part of that too. Because when you combine these things like creativity, generating ideas, logic, having a rigor to the ideas and so on, and that this thing is feasible and somehow makes sense. Um, in the end, this is how you start to create testable hypotheses. This is a key part to creating a testable hypothesis. But we also have to accept that this system is not as deterministic as we would like. The variables are, you know, sometimes hugely in conflict with each other, confounding variables in there. It's so hard to really know that anything occurring in there is causal. So that's why you can't just, you can't think your way out of this. You can't just say, oh, I think this is going to be the best practice. That will give you a hypothesis. But ultimately, you can only test your way out of this because there are things that might be counterintuitive that will work. And there will be things that might be intuitive that won't work. And in the end, when you bring together good quality thinking and creativity and all these hypotheses, just more than ever, I mean, this is not rocket science or not groundbreaking. It's been said before. I don't think this is like headline material, but we are just actually I was even saying stuff like this a year ago. <laughs> um, I'm thinking back on some presentations I gave. We just have to get into a testing mindset having a testing roadmap, this is the most important thing that a modern marketer can do. And what a modern account structure will look like, yeah, there are some rules of thumb. I don't want to say best practices. Listen to the episode with Alex um, Greifeld a few episodes back. Um, but there are some kind of general rules or principles that you can have. But depending on what industry you're in or your client is in, depending on all kinds of specifics, and about their business and what they want to reflect. Um, you, you just have to test through this. Uh, next thing that I want to talk about here, <clears throat> maybe it won't be as long, but it's it's somehow related. I call this the hideous strength of incrementality. Um, now, the hideous strength, that's the name of some C.S. Lewis book, uh, author who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. I actually never read that. I never read The Hideous Strength either. I just love that phrase. And somehow it clicked in my mind that incrementality <laughs> feels this way, to me at least. And I'll, I'll explain it in more detail first. So I want to start by just talking about the word incremental, um, just because it's sort of a trickery, tricky word, kind of a slippery word. It has, as I see it, two main meanings where there's the idea of providing an increment. So that's delivering something on top. And this is often what's understood with marketing incrementality, like uh, a conversion or a sale would not have occurred without marketing pressure. So you know that marketing delivered something on top, but it doesn't have to be as grand as that, like that this wouldn't have happened at all without without marketing. I think there's just, there's generally this, this question of added value. Um, and he also, it's related to the idea of like marginal returns, for example. You could also think of those as like incremental returns. And then there's another sense of the word incremental, which is um, rather than delivering an increment, it's more delivered by increments. So step by step, in other words, this idea of things happening step by step. And um, back to the idea of the modern marketer, 
I think that's somebody who's going to be incrementally incremental, if if that's not too cringeworthy, that phrase. Um, what I mean there is step-by-step delivering things on top. You could aim for some ambitious 10x kind of mentality or something like that, uh, but I don't think it's going to work for you because um, the whole system is so complex and non-deterministic, as we were saying, and you, you just you won't know what worked or why. Um, Even if you have some, I think it's better to break things down into smaller bites and work with a testing roadmap when we're talking about about testing. But now let's talk about the hideous part, the ugly part of of incrementality. And here I really mean in the sense of of added value Um, because everybody says that they want incremental growth and um, and of course we we do, but we also want campaigns and creatives and ad sets and all this stuff that look great, that just perform well on paper in the platform. Um, <clears throat> there are kind of conflicting incentives here. And the things that the platform will tell us uh, are, are not necessarily the same things that a back-end report will tell us or that our bottom line will tell us. And the reality is that the really incremental stuff, the really incremental stuff, probably like it's strong. That's why I say the hideous strength. It is It is strong. It's good growth. It's, it's incremental. That's clear. But um, it's not going to look as pretty. It just won't. It's not going to look as good in the platform. Um, it looks good on the, on the bottom line. That's where that's where it shines. But and it's a bit of a concern that I have with Performance Max. Um, I don't want to talk about that campaign type too much on this podcast. Sometimes I feel like we've become the Pmax podcast, so I want to talk a little more broadly today. But it's a challenge that you face in your account. Um, <clears throat> if you're really optimizing for performance as the platform sees and understands it there's the risk that you're optimizing toward toward vanity metrics or toward things that that look good but are not as good in their substance as as they look the idea that all that glitters isn't gold uh, you know i think the concerns with performance max or with poorly managed accounts is that um <clears throat> They're too dependent on brand traffic, which delivers really great performance, but is it incremental? They're too dependent on remarketing or the remarketing isn't kind of structured carefully enough. Um, Maybe it's getting blended in too much. And again, that'll make performance look great, but is it incremental? Um, Or that there's a bestseller bias that you're, you know, because bestsellers, they're they're just going to perform more efficiently than... Um, the long tail products. But <laughs> this question, one last time, is that incremental? And and it's a genuine question because, you know, your best sellers, yeah, you want to push them, they perform well, you want to get as much volume out of them as you can. Um, but are those the products that actually need marketing pressure the most? It's always the question that I have to ask. Uh, these These other products might you know, generate sales that wouldn't have occurred otherwise and and di- kind of diversify your product mix and what you're selling, but it won't perform as well in terms of efficiency. So, you know, these are these are the questions. And I think it takes a certain level of, of commitment. Like we need to be aware that the things that look so great in the platform 
um, where performance is maxed, so to say, that it might not be the most incremental thing going on there. And the things that are really driving value for your business might not look as great in the platform. And you have to have a commitment that you're going to do them anyway because they're important and they're worth doing. So this is this is what I'm trying to get at here with this idea of hideous strength is that they're really the incremental stuff. Um, it just it just takes commitment and it you know you have to check what are my incentives here and what are we doing and why and are the campaigns actually um, supporting the right incentives or are they driven by wrong incentives? It comes down to that kind of a stuff. So I think that's important to have reflected in your testing and in your budgets um, where, you know, if you flip on a new customer only campaign, you might be like, oh, that didn't deliver a lot of volume. Um, But how can you mix and match that campaign type where you feel assured that it's more incremental in the sense of generating new business with other kind of campaign types that might have more of a remarketing flavor or you don't know what's in there. So this comes down again when we're talking about incentives and to whom does what performance look good and so on and and why brings us to this other point, which is uh, that beauty is in the eye of the stakeholder. In a nutshell, I think that there are two ways of looking at revenue. There's the idea of like more revenue, the revenue volume, and then there's the idea of better revenue, the revenue composition. And uh, you're, I'll just make some some broad strokes, very you know divisive statements here, stereotypes, cliches. <laughs> your 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 CMO might be more interested in um, how this campaign looks on paper, and that there's more revenue. Your CFO might be more interested in the revenue composition that this was more profitable or that. Um, you know, um, it was more operationally effective that it was that we weren't just uh, throwing money at products so that they could stock out faster, but that we were throwing money at the right products. These kind of questions. So, again, very broad brush uh, statement, but I just want to highlight the point that people are going to have different reasons for liking different kind of things, and and we have to try to optimize toward the balance of those and in the best interest of of the business. And one thing that comes to mind here, we talked earlier um, about this kind of feasibility space. What is feasible inside a modern Google Ads account? And And what is it right to focus on? What should we care about or not care about? So a big mindset shift here that I'm advocating for is that people shouldn't care so much about CPCs anymore, cost per click. And um, the reasons why cost per click used to be this primary input metric that we had and this controlling metric that we had uh, when bidding was the name of the game. So we we used CPCs and, and bid modifiers and all kinds of things. Um, not to say that those don't have a place in an account anymore. I, I don't want to say that. Uh, but largely, the market is using Google Automation for bidding. And the cost per click in that point 
it's been delegated to Google. Google is responsible for that. They're controlling that. Um, that's a lever that they mostly control. So it's an input that is less available than it used to be. And people can complain about that and people can make conspiracy theories about Google driving up CPCs and so on. But the reality is that CPC to me is largely a market driven thing now. And, and I, again, I don't want to say that there's no opportunity in CPC anymore, but I, I want to say it's not the biggest opportunity anymore. And another problem that I have with CPC is that it frames the whole conversation around cost. And um, it's it's very like it, it, it frames the entire channel as a cost center, which, by the way, might be problematic going into a recession or at least an economic downturn. Let's see what we're facing here because cost centers get scrutinized. Um, and what if you could instead frame the channel as a value center? Okay, I, I also just cringed at that. It feels cringeworthy, uh, value center, value creation. But to put it more concretely, instead of talking about what am I spending on every click, um, how much is this costing me, which doesn't feel good, it's, it's much more fruitful to talk about how much is this making for the business, you know, the dollars, the euros, the pounds. And I think there's a real case to be made <clears throat> that to a certain extent, we never had a right or weren't best qualified to say what a click should cost or how much a bid should be. Um, I mean, I'm speaking here, by the way, I, I do believe that it is possible. It's a challenge that can be solved, helped develop technology and, and our company. Uh, I, I just played a small role here. Our company developed technology that manages challenge for a long time, and we still manage that challenge um, for some people. But the the point being, it's really a predictive task. When we talk about the average person approaching this challenge or the average company approaching this challenge um, who doesn't have data science resources necessarily to bring to bear, um, it, it's very much a predictive challenge to say, what should I pay for a click? And a lot of things occur there because, you know, primarily you can, in e-commerce, you can make this kind of an assessment on a product basis or a product group, product being about as granular as you can get in terms of how can I make that decision. But um, we've talked about it before on the show. There's this huge discrepancy between the product clicked and then the order that was purchased or the transaction that was completed. And that is this very interesting space. I mean, yeah, you can you can get, get an idea for those effects as well. But the other thing is that there's a whole there's a whole audience topic in there. And, and this is what Google promises to solve for us. They say that they have uh, a they've got their shopping graph, which is a very detailed understanding of products that are out there. And B, they've got their audience graphs in an effect. They've got the ability to understand audiences and have uh, history related to audiences and so on. And the marriage of those two things should be um, about as effective or efficient as it gets in, in terms of deciding what a click is actually worth. What we're much more qualified to talk about is what is, uh, you know, what is this whole thing worth to me or what, what kind of value do I want to get or need to get out of the channel? 
because that's less of a predictive task and it's more, what are the demands of my business? What do I need? What do I expect? Um, and so I think that there is a case to be made that cost per click was never the appropriate way for, for us to kind of attack this anyway. Another thing is that cost per click is very um, siloed, so to say, you know, it, it's very just pertains to the channel. It's, it's a, it's a product of the channel. When you, I, I guess I'll show you an alternative here to explain um, how this picture could look differently and a metric that I've been advocating for more loudly for a while is value per click or revenue per click. Um, I'll say value per click because you could also, if you're tracking profit, for example, which is great, then suddenly you're tracking profit per click, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, it's basically, it's the per click counterpart of cost per click. If you would look at the return on advertising spend, the ROAS, this very popular efficiency metric out there, which I've talked about in past monologues or rants. Um, if you look at the ROAS on a per click basis, these are the two key components there. The, the AS part, the ad spend part, that's the cost per click on a, on a click basis. And then the R part, the return part, that is the value per click. And the value per click is interesting because it's comprised of the conversion rate and the order value. The order value, again, these these uh, clicked versus bought effects where they clicked on one product, but they bought five products or, or they clicked on one product, but they downgraded to a less valuable product. Those things are expressed in the, um, in the order value and the conversion rate expresses many things too. And, and this to this channel silo topic, we're already breaking out of the channel silo because the cost per click, it's really a product of the channel, but the value per click it has to do, yes, with your campaigns and the audiences that you feed and how well you're targeting and all kinds of things, all, all this stuff about what does a good account look like and what can, what roles are the campaigns playing. But the value per click is equally a product of all the things that happen off the channel and on your website. So your conversion rate optimization, um, your ability to recommend products for upsell or cross-sell, your, your kind of your overall offer and the effectiveness of of the pages and the products and um, ultimately your proposition that you're sending traffic to a place where it can convert and where it should convert. So that's why I really like value per click because it's something that reflects both worlds and it's very granular. It's on this per click basis and it changes the conversation from being about a cost structure to a value structure, a value generating place. Then to this topic about beauty being in the eye of the beholder, I mean, I want to just, before I move on from that, I just want to, men I mentioned profit per click already, but I still view this topic about like revenue volume and revenue composition and how we can kind of find the best of both worlds. I often see people talking out there as if it's a binary decision that you either have to choose um, volume, growth, or you have to choose profit, efficiency. And I don't think that that's right. I think that there's a both and situation here. Uh, to me, like revenue, that's clear, that's that's volume, that's growth. And then where it becomes a little less clear, efficiency, okay, there we're talking about profitability, how profitable 
is a single transaction or click or however. Um, but there's also a volume metric which expresses kind of both of these things, and that's profit in terms of the actual dollars of profit or pounds of profit that are generated. So instead of the percentage margin, you know, percentage margin expresses the profitability. Oh, I have a 25% margin on this. I have a 5% margin on that. Um, but then when you look at the multiply that by the price of, of it, you'll end up with these different absolute values, which are the profit. And you, yes, you can grow volume and care about profit at the same time or profitability at the same time. And that's by optimizing toward profit. I've talked about it before. I just, I just want to hammer home the message there. Um, and that's not about growth. And it's not about efficiency. It's about combining those two things into what I would call, probably many people call, marketing effectiveness. That to me is is what it's all about. And that's something where you have the chance of being in this wonderful position of pleasing both the cliche CMO and the cliche CFO is when you're talking about effectiveness instead of either efficiency or volume. So rant over on that part. Um, okay, and then one more thing I just want to add, though, I'm just thinking about this, about value per click. I'm a big fan, as you can see. Um, so just to connect it back neatly to some of the stuff we we're talking about before, we we're talking about testing and learning. Um, and another thing why I think it's so important to focus on value per click instead of cost per click is that value per click is an output metric. Um, and when we're talking about a learning system like machine learning or like a learning organization, the company that you that you work inside of, you, you've got these two things that want to learn. You've got an algorithm that is supposed to be learning automatically, and you've got a company that wants to learn and improve. And um, the thing about value per click and output, today's output is tomorrow's input because the things that you're measuring on today will change what you decide to do tomorrow. It will change what kind of conclusions you reach and what kind of results you have. And so it's very important to set up a healthy measurement concept and focus on the right things here because um, otherwise it's like feeding your whole learning system, whether it's machine learning or your organization as, as a learning system, you're feeding it a bad diet. But if you have high quality, um, you know, you want to create this virtuous cycle of high quality input, high quality output. So bringing lots of interesting data sets in, um, having a rigorous testing roadmap in place, and then also measuring correctly so that you the next round of inputs is even stronger. All right, let's bring it around to the last point. And actually, so far, I'm, or I think we're kind of still in the time box here, so that's great. Um, the merchant center of gravity. Uh, I, I find something that I find interesting is that the merchant center seems to be undergoing a lot of development. Google Ads UI seems to be undergoing a lot of development. And you might think that Google would just kind of pick one of these things where they want us to focus on more, but there are new kinds of insights and reporting fields and all kinds of very interesting things coming to the Merchant Center. And I guess the question there is why? What's going on here? And what should we do about it? Why should we care? So 
I think that the Merchant Center is and will continue to be a very interesting and important place to spend time in the future because of a couple things. Google is always getting held in comparison to Amazon, and it's often a very unflattering comparison, and I've done the same. Um, and one of the reasons why is Amazon has stolen some, let's say, shopping-related search volume from Google or the, these, you know, Google's whole business models that they've got all this search volume running through Google search, and then some of that volume has commercial intent, and then they can serve ads on that, of course. And the problem for them is that the volume that contains commercial intent, a lot of that is instead shifting over to Amazon. Um, and more recently, there have been reports about TikTok, and that's an interesting topic too. I'm not going to get into that too much right now. I think it's a touch overhyped, but when we're talking about Amazon, it's very clear what Amazon stands for. It's very clear what you as a consumer can expect there. I mean, at least to me, when I think Amazon, uh, right off the top of my head, I'm thinking about great selection, low prices, and um, you know, excellent fulfillment, fast delivery, and so on. Now, what is Google is the Google consumer experience supposed to be for commercial intent for these for people who want to purchase or might purchase? What exactly is Google offering here? I have no idea. That's a genuine question. I don't know what Google's offers, what their value proposition is. Um, you came here to search and oops, there's an ad. Like, is the price good? No promises. Is the delivery and fulfillment good? No promises. That, that's what the experience is like. It's very inconsistent. And this is something that Google wants to fix and needs to fix. They have to, you know, really leverage their different kind of surfaces or, you know, ad inventory and entertainment experiences and stuff like this. They need to make the process more enjoyable, more social. A lot of things, that's the TikTok side. But they also need to make things just more useful as a consumer on the shopping side. And that's the Amazon side of the coin of the challenge. They need to do both of those things. The Merchant Center is an increasingly important place where this stuff um, is going to play out. And I think, you know, there are two things that jump out to me there. We mentioned already the shopping graph, but I want to mention it one more time. That is Google's product graph, the, the way that they understand the association of products and different attributes there, categorical attributes, reviews, images and assets, all kinds of things. It's it's the way that they understand or connect all these things together. And price point as well, demand, these things all get in there. And um, the other thing I want to mention is the shopping experience scorecard, because that is directly tackling the problems that they face where they're, they're not offering a consistent experience. So the promise of the shopping experience scorecard is that, um, A, it's really great for you as a merchant to kind of be strong in these areas. And B, if you are strong in these areas, like reviews and the different things that are mentioned on there, uh, that basically ensure a more positive experience for a Google's end customer or the, the traffic that Google's serving as an intermediate for then they're going to increase the visibility that you can achieve. So if you offer a better customer experience, you get rewarded with more visibility in certain contexts. And I think they'll lean harder into that as it goes on. This is something that, you know, Amazon has always had high expectations of their sellers or, or rewarded or punished people, depending on 
basically how they're supporting or not supporting Amazon's customer experience. And Google's headed in that same direction too. It's a very important step. It's a good step. And then when we look at the the pricing, um, excuse me, the product graph, I'm going to get to the topic of pricing. Um, That's an interesting one too, because we were talking about the things that are no longer feasible or insights that we don't have anymore. We have less search term report data or potentially none, depending on the context. And this is frustrating to some people. But we also have things that are newly feasible, things that have been added. And I don't want to say that Google hasn't done that stuff. It's very great that they have. Some of that includes benchmark pricing. It includes better bestseller reports, new columns like the relative demand column, um, historical bestseller data, uh, new, new competitor overview that's available in the Merchant Center, and so on. And I view all of that stuff as enabled by the shopping graph. It's because of the shopping graph that these things become available. And where they're pushing really hard right now is on the topic of pricing. Because first, they offered the benchmark pricing reports. And what I love there is that you can also access that data inside of Google Ads, which is super cool. You can also uh, export the data via BigQuery. That's a really interesting thing, too. You can connect it into Data Studio or stuff like that. But what they're also doing on pricing, they've got some newer features here. I mean, they've had an automated discount feature that's been in beta for a long time and it's and it's rolling out more and more. And they also have a price insights tab. Um, so these are both interesting. And what they're trying to do, like it gets to that part of Amazon's value proposition, low prices. And then you look at Google and there's only a big question mark there. Um, so this is a lever for them in the whole auction environment and for a way for them to offer a better customer experience where they want people to get more serious about their pricing. And at a certain point, they might start compelling us to get more serious about it. Or the fact that other people are getting more serious about pricing and adopting features like automated discounting um, could then damage the the, the chances of the people who don't do that and, and force them to, to kind of do that. We'll see where we go with this. But Google is, you know, offering you a lot of insight here on your pricing. They're modeling what it would mean for you if you would apply automated discounts, what would happen to your, to your profit and stuff like this. So it's very clear that they want us to adopt this. And I think where we just have to be careful, because I, I have sometimes discussed pricing as the new bidding because it is a way that you can um, sort of help pace what occurs in the shopping channel. It's by having more or less attractive pricing. But Google wants to control that lever. And the question there is just, what do we want our relationship with Google to be here? How much um, control do we want Google to have over our pricing? Also in Europe, I think there are regulatory issues that come into play as well um, with like the newish Omnibus Act uh, that makes dynamic pricing a bit more complicated. This comes into question. And Google wants you to submit your cost of goods sold if you're going to uh, enjoy this functionality. And so, yeah, are you willing to let Google know your profitability and give them control of your pricing and then in the end effect control your profitability? These are questions. I'm not saying that I don't want to paint Google as a villain here. Um, I think it's interesting technology. And I think we just have to go into it with very open eyes and consider the trade-offs. 
But there's a lot more that we could talk about when we're thinking about what is going on in Google Ads today in marketing more broadly. I mean, I think bigger questions arise like how can I learn from what's working in Google Ads and transfer it to Facebook or learn from what's working in Facebook How can or, or Microsoft Ads, et cetera? How can I kind of connect my learning into something bigger? How can I roll it up? And what's going to happen to all this stuff when, if and when, let's see, Google keeps pushing off the death of the cookie year for year. But um, it seems clear that the tracking capabilities we've enjoyed for a long time are going to change. They've already changed. Uh, We see how punishing that's been in some areas and less punishing in others so far. But there's a lot to analyze here. And I just want to give you a glimpse of that. Some of the things I've been thinking lately. So I hope, you know, it was a lot of mindset stuff. I hope that this was helpful for you. And um, if not, write me an angry email. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Growing E-Commerce. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't write me an angry email. (laughs) Now, please consider sharing it with coworkers, friends, or within your professional network. We really appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Smarter E-Commerce, also known as MEC. To learn more, visit smarter-ecommerce.com.